The preaching of God's Word is in Psalm 51, in the final two verses, Psalm 51, verses 18 and 19. Here David concludes this very rich portion of God's Word with a request for the blessing of the church. So we read, Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. When we see in context, it's a very uh, rich meditation to consider that here is David, who by his sins had brought the call for judgment against himself and as a king, a public figure, even against his kingdom. And we see this throughout the scriptures, that leaders, by their sins, bring problems and judgments upon their people. David himself would have part in this. You'll remember as he numbers the people, uh, he's given three options for judgment. And he casts himself and his people upon the Lord. And yet judgment does come, yet mercifully is stayed in the Lord's kindness. But there is a point and principle that public figures bring harm upon the people they represent when they sin against God. Now think of that. David has sinned grievously against God. And yet now he who carelessly ventured into those forbidden paths is now seeking the Lord's building up of Zion. And the psalm, of course, unlocks for us the reason that is. So consider once more this psalm. It begins, of course, in history before this psalm. When David found himself absent from his post, when the season had come for kings to go off to war, he was at home and his eyes fell upon Bathsheba, And the story goes of his adulterous affair and his seeking to cover the pregnancy and his appointing her husband Uriah unto death. So he's guilty of adultery. He's guilty of deception. He's guilty of murder. And months pass without so much as a tremble or quiver in his conscience. But notice Nathan comes as the psalm opens and as recorded elsewhere and reproves David and it's this word of reproof blessed by God that turns David from seeking the destruction of himself and of God's people to casting his hope upon God's mercy and imploring the Lord for the building up of Zion in one sense this one word of reproof is the hinge point the turning point to the opening a blessing upon the Lord's people. And so this one faithful minister in the hand of God is used for David's good and is used for the generation of David's time and the good of Zion. But brethren, here is the psalm for us today and has remained in the canon and shall remain in the canon of Scripture forever so that this faithful ministry of Nathan with reproof brings about continued blessings upon the church of God. 
David was convicted. He's brought to rest all upon God's mercy, personally seeking restoration, but now seeking as well the advance and renewal of God's people. What we see is the effect of grace is the cultivating of a seeking for more grace, not only personally, as is clear throughout this psalm, but on behalf of others. So notice the words, do good in thy good pleasure to whom? Not to me alone. He sought that, of course. It's entirely right that we would. But he says, do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. And of course, parallel, build thou the walls of Jerusalem. This pinnacle, which is the emblem of the people of God. And of course, we remember that Zion is taken up in the scriptures as indicating the whole of God's church. What David is seeking ultimately is the Lord's building up of his people. So David would have single-handedly brought down God's people by his sin. And having been personally restored, he doesn't say, well, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to build it up. Instead, he lifts his hope unto God and petitions God to do it. Not just build up my cause. Don't just bless them for my sake that I would have an easier reign and a more efficient time as king. But notice, why is it that he seeks it? That they then would worship God. Then, as you bless them, as you build them up, then shalt thou, God, be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. We hear in the scriptures of the sacrifices of the wicked. So what's the difference? You have the sacrifices of the righteous, the sacrifices of the wicked. Well, according to the letter of the law, they may be one and the same. The same type of animal, spotless and so on. And yet the worshiper is the difference. One is worshiping God falsely. One is not willing to part from their sins. One is just bringing this offering according to the letter of the law and going about the rest of their life thinking, well, now I'm covered. Now I'm fine. You remember that God's prophets reprove his presumptuous people saying, don't say the temple, the temple, we've got the temple, we're okay, when it is that your hearts are far from him. So those sacrifices of the wicked may indeed include burnt offerings, whole burnt offerings, bullocks, and so on. But the sacrifices of the righteous is a sacrifice offered by one who is seeking the Lord in faith, first and foremost, but also whose life is illustrating and showing forth the marks of grace. They're repenting. And so you'll think of the various sacrifices. We need not go through them recorded in the Pentateuch and clarified elsewhere as well, that some were offered on account of their sins. And so whole burnt offerings were those which most fully pointed out that sacrificial propitious work of Christ on behalf of the sinner. And yet also there were sacrifices offered that were indeed to display love and delight. And here the sacrifices of righteousness are the sacrifices offered from a believing and grace-filled soul. 
and all of it, notice, is offered by them to the satisfying of God. Then shalt thou be pleased. So in other words, notice, David isn't just seeking the spread of goodwill and good cheer and happiness and pleasure among God's people. In fact, he's seeking something far greater. He's seeking the good pleasure of God. God bless us that we in turn, being made faithful by your grace, would be those who honor you. See, in other words, David personally had fallen astray and is restored unto the right orientation of seeking God. And now it is his desire that his brothers and sisters in the church would also be oriented to promoting God's praise. And so while there is here a right and proper focus upon the people of God, it is a focus upon the people of God for the sake of the advance of God's praise. And so you see this, as we'll sing later on in Psalm 67, when here we have this earnest seeking of God being merciful to us, blessing us, causing his face to shine upon us. Why? That thy way may be known upon earth, thy saving health or salvation among all nations. Let the people praise thee. See, the whole psalm is seeking blessing upon us, the church, and upon through us, the world. But ultimately, the fundamental purpose is that God's name would be praised. The psalmist desires the honor of God. And so what you have here is a massive contrast of David prior to Nathan's rebuke to David after Nathan's rebuke. Prior to, David had gone astray and he's seeking his and his pleasures and his desires and his advance and he's presumptuous and he's seeking all for himself and now the rebuke by God's blessing is used to humble him, to break him, to bring about contrition so that now he's resting upon God's mercy and seeking God's glory. But he's not content with mere personal renewal. He longs for others to be so renewed, the church to be renewed and strengthened and revived to the promoting of God's praise. And so it is we see in this psalm, particularly at the end, this truth which is elsewhere displayed, that those who are renewed by God seek the renewal of God in others. This is fundamental. So soon as a person is converted, They have an instinct wanting to see others drawn to Christ. Now, it's not natural, as if part of the natural man. It's supernatural. In other words, when God plants life in a soul, it is that that soul renewed by God's grace is now seeking the things of God for God. And this is true as well when we as believers have you know, slidden this way or that, stepped right or left off the path and are restored, that we are not only watchful over our own lives, but we're seeking the Lord to advance his praise in the lives of others. The effect of grace is seeking the advance of grace in the lives of God's people and the advance of God's glory by their lives. Well, consider three things as we conclude our treatment of Psalm 51. The first is, who is seeking this renewal? Renewal. 
Secondly, what is it he's seeking? And thirdly, why is it that he seeks it? So who is it that seeks it? What is it he seeks? And why is it he seeks? Well, firstly, then who seeks it? This is obvious in context. It's David. And so Psalm 51, we see the title, a psalm of David. But let's think more fully who it is that's seeking this renewal. It's one who formerly had turned aside most egregiously. We've already recounted these things. The title is Frank and yet Prudent after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Of course, the scriptures recount more, but the point is, here is one who had turned aside grievously. And if you were to have looked at David with all of his privileges as a prophet of the Lord, as the sweet psalmist of Israel, as a king of God's people, you would have seen one who had become careless in the promoting of the well-being of Zion. And in fact, by his sin, as we've noted, was seeking its downfall. So what is this one? Well, he's one who formerly turned aside, But notice as the psalmist continues, as David continues, he's one who is personally resting on mercy. This gives us insight. The one who will seek the advance of God's kingdom is one who knows the way of advance. It's by God's mercy. We'll spend more time on this, but notice in verse 18, do good in thy good pleasure. It's a Hebrew way of speaking of God's grace. Do good freely. Do good in your mercy. Do good in thy good pleasure. And so as he personally had turned aside and had learned that the way of restoration, the way of spiritual restoration and renewal and revival is by God's mercy, he is now positioned properly to seek this mercy for others. It's as we mentioned earlier, Saul of Tarsus, who would recount with a sense of conviction and shame his former way of life, how he was a persecutor of the church, and even as he says, a blasphemer of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, he having been graciously saved, converted, and renewed, is now the agent seeking the blessing of others and is willing to travel this way and that. And you think of the things just in rapid fire he rattles off that he was willing to endure for the sake of the cause of Jesus Christ. Shipwreck and beatings and being beaten with stripes and all of these different things, naked, cold, all of these things in different ways, falsely accused and left for dead and at sea for days in the ocean, you know, these things that he was willing to do. Why? Well, he had tasted that the Lord is good. He had personally known the mercy of God. This helps us because as we start to think about seeking the Lord's renewing of his cause, it gives us, as it were, insight as to what fuels our own seeking of it. It is the first tasting and seeing that God is good. It's the first finding the sweetness 
of mercy in Jesus Christ. And this is the one who's seeking it for others. He's seeking the advance of it in others. One who himself had gone aside and was worthy to be judged, worthy to be cast off, worthy to be cut off, had been restored by the mercy of God and had come to rest and delight in that mercy and is pleading that mercy and takes in that mercy and delights in the mercy. And as he's resting on that mercy, he's made to seek it for others. You remember those lepers in the Old Testament who went out and they sought, as it were, provision from a warring group, but God had caused that army to flee away and they find the spoil and they're astounded and they look at all the riches and they start taking it and hiding it. And then one says, listen, we need to go and tell others lest we're judged because of this great goodness shown to us is also meant for others. What's the point? It's this, when God shows mercy to us, it's not for us alone. God is doing a work in us for us that's also targeting others and you see that here in David he's seeking not his personal gain he's not seeking his ease of rule you know what make this a willing people so that I can sit upon my throne with ease that's not it he's tasted the sweetness of God's mercy and whereas his soul is satisfied he desires that same taste to be known by others So one who had tasted the mercy of God. And think for a moment how inexcusable David's actions were. God makes it quite plain. He says, listen, you were this lowly, even the least of your brothers, a shepherd. And I exalted you to be the king of my people. I gave you everything. I advanced your fame. I gave your kingdom to advance and grow. I gave you victory over your enemies. I've done all of this for you. And now look what you've done. I've given you a wife. I've given you children. And now you've committed adultery. You've taken one of, by the way, your mighty men who was full of integrity. And you've murdered him by your command. Oh, the grief that gripped David. We saw that already when he spoke of this. I acknowledge, verse 3, my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. Speaks of verse 8, his bones which God had broken. The grief of conviction is indeed the greatest grief there is. Second only to the grief of conviction of sinners in hell. There's no greater grief. But the Christian's grief, I have sinned against God, God who is holy, God who is merciful, God who has been good to me, is overwhelming. And at that moment, Satan often launches upon one of his common strategies to now point out all of the wickedness that we've done and committed. And he who was saying, listen, it's not that big of a deal. You know, you'll get happiness out of this pleasure. It's just sin a little bit. It's not, you know, don't worry about it. So as soon as we sin, our consciences are hit. Now he's the worst adversary we've ever met. He launches on us, rubs our face in it, and we're overwhelmed. 
And it seems, as it were, for our souls to be too good a thing to think that we could find peace again. But notice the psalm goes on and testifies of all of these blessings that he seeks, even the greatest of blessings, that God would restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. He was tasting God's mercy. And he who tasted it, having come out of the great trenches of his own self-inflicted pain and agony, that God should restore him, that God should forgive his sins, that God should establish peace for him. He's one who's tasted it. And he says, this is too good than to keep only to myself. And so he seeks it for others. Brethren, notice secondly what it is that he seeks. You see two things related, of course. One thing he seeks is the good of Zion, the good of God's people. So verse 18, do good unto Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Surely there were literal walls around Jerusalem. We know that. There's no indication historically that the walls were in any disrepair at this time. But what's being gotten at is build up the well-being of your people. As walls protect, so build up the well-being and safety of your people. Do good to your people. It doesn't neglect the fact of outward provision, but certainly in historical context, it's seeking more than these walls being built up. It's seeking generally the good of Zion. And this is, of course, what David is seeking. Notice David doesn't say, now I'm going to go build the walls. He's seeking God to do this. He's asking God to restore and build up and advance his cause. He's seeking God to do the opposite of what David was doing by his sin. Whereas I have been seeking the downfall of Zion, I implore you to seek the building up of Zion. We saw this in essence in Colossians chapter 1 when Paul heard of the work begun among the Colossians and as he says so uh, memorably since the day we heard it we have not stopped praying. And what is it that he was praying? That ye, the church of God, might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God and so on. Notice what he's seeking fundamentally is that God would build up Jerusalem. Lord, I've heard of your work among your beloved people in Colossae, and I'm not going to stop praying that you would build up this cause. Now, of course, Paul was an apostle, as he says, a minister, verse 23. And so he had a particular calling to labor about the building up, and he did so in teaching and preaching and so on. But notice, he's fundamentally committed to it in his prayer. He's praying, God, you build up the cause of Zion. It stands in need of your grace. If ever the church is to be matured and strengthened, it will only come as you bless it. You can think of David himself as but one sort of example in microcosm. And so David himself had turned aside 
And were it not for God sending Nathan, blessing Nathan's word, what would have happened to David? He would have withered away unto entire uselessness. He would have been cut off without the fragrance of mercy and grace that is now associated with his name. David had realized that if ever I'm to prosper in the things of your kingdom, it is as you do good to me. And now he's realizing it's not by my work that Zion will be well fortified, strengthened, and advanced, but it's by your work that it will be done. And so notice as he seeks the good of Zion, he seeks it by grace for Zion. He doesn't appeal and say, listen, Zion's worthy of it. Your people are worthy of it. I'm worthy of it. He says, do good in thy good pleasure. Remember the opening request? Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. What is he saying? Forgive my sins according to thy good pleasure. In your mercy, in the multitude of your loving kindness, for no other cause but that you are full of mercy, have mercy on me. And now what's he doing for the sake of God's people? He's doing the same thing. Do these good things for them because of your mercy toward them. He, having personally been brought to rest upon the Lord's mercy, is now interceding for the good of God's people according to God's mercy. Brethren, this, of course, can enliven our prayers for one another and for others of our brothers and sisters as well. All of us know that as we pray for one another, there are hindrances and obstacles. Perhaps we can see, well, you know, I'm not worthy of these blessings I'm seeking. That family's not worthy of it. This church isn't worthy of it. That congregation, this denomination, these people, you know, they've got problems. They've got doctrinal errors. They've got practical sins, all of these things. So what are we to do? Well, we're to remember that the blessing comes upon us as well as upon all of God's people in God's mercy. And there's where our foundation of hope comes. Now, this doesn't mean we ignore the sins of ourselves or of God's people in general, but it shows us where the hope of our petition springs from. And so we might think for a moment, you know, we have brethren who uh, have polluted God's worship. And we might think, you know, how can I seek the Lord's blessing of my brethren who are offering false worship, which in Scripture brought forth such judgment as even priestly men were struck down. How can I ask God be merciful? How can I ask God bless and build up your cause in them? Here it is. It's according to his good pleasure. You think of the illustrative men and women of the Old Testament and New Testament. And you look, for instance, at Jacob and Esau. And as you look at Jacob, you say, you know, this man was a rather wily man. He wasn't a good man. And yet the Lord blessed Jacob. Why? Because his blessing is by grace. And by grace, what happens? Jacob becomes humbled. Jacob becomes a man of faith. Jacob becomes a man who uh, is 
serving the Lord, not perfectly, but according to God's grace. You think of Noah. Noah found what in the sight of the Lord? Grace. Doesn't mean he was a perfect man, though he was certainly righteous in his generation. But imagine this for a moment. He has gone through the whole destruction of a sin-cursed world. And he's brought out on the other side with his family and the animals. And he sends out finally the dove and it goes off and so on. The doors open and he goes off and he becomes a vine dresser. And what happens? He then descends into drunkenness for a season. Why was Noah blessed? One thing we can say is it wasn't that he was blessed because he was a perfect man. He was blessed by God's grace. And so it is for us. It doesn't excuse the sin. It doesn't cause us to look at the sin personally or publicly as a light thing. But it does orient us to see that the foundation of our hope of the Lord blessing us or other congregations or the church of Christ at large is as the Lord is full of mercy. And so we can pray. I mean, this is almost astonishing that we have to reason this way. But we can pray for our Baptist brethren, for our Anglican brethren, for our Lutheran brethren, in spite of their you know, divergences in doctrine and their sins and so forth. And we can say, Lord, would you build up Zion in them by your mercy? And with that, of course, what are we asking? but that he would reform these things. And we say, wait, time out. You know, these denominations hearken back 200, 300, 400, 500 years. You mean to say that you're asking that the Lord would reform them? I mean, this is seemingly impossible. And we say, absolutely, and without hesitation. Well, what hope do we have if the Lord should overthrow false worship practiced by his people? Because the Lord is merciful. And so we pray for these great things that are revealed in his word, not because we're confident we can affect it, not because we're confident that they'll simply turn over a new leaf and get it going, but rather because God, who is powerful, is able to use a single word of Nathan to turn the heart of David from his proud presumption into a humble supplicant resting again in God's mercy. And if God is able to do that in King David, he's able to do that in the lives of his other people. And so we pray, Lord, do these good things. Advance your cause. Reform your people. uh, Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Why? Because you are a God who is gracious. You see, what happened is David had tasted the personal mercy of God He had known himself unworthy. He had known himself worthy to be cast aside. And now he's restored. Now he's regaining by God's grace the joy of his salvation. And he surveys the kingdom and he sees perhaps errors that we can't perceive uh, presently from history. And he sees it and says, Lord, my people who are your people need your blessing. They need you to restore, to build up, to advance. But how can it be done? Here's how. According to your mercy, in thy good pleasure, do so. Brethren, ought we not to seek the same? Now we can perceive in certain places and in different ways, corruptions of God's doctrine and worship and government, and this grieves us. And we may be tempted to think, well, there's really no hope. Let's just sort of pull back and isolate ourselves 
and there's need, of course, to withdraw from corruption and sin. But we ought not to take a defeatist mentality. Instead, we ought to be those who are petitioning confidently for the Lord to reform his cause and to do so not because of any intrinsic you know, benefit in us or them, but rather as he is merciful. This is what the Lord's teaching us, that we would seek the advance of Zion, the reform and reviving of Zion by the grace of the God of Zion. Well, notice then thirdly, why David seeks this. There's no doubt that he seeks this for Zion's good. It's good. You know, children know this. Is it better or worse to be those who are enjoying God or uh, disobeying God? Well, of course it's better. Is it better for them? Of course it's better for them. So there is the benefit for Zion, right? They then will be made a holy people in practice and their observance of your commandments will be in the observance of righteousness, And they'll offer bullocks upon thine altar. Your sacrifices so ordered in the Old Testament will be observed as they're meant to be observed. Your people will be purified. And that's a good thing. And brethren, it's right for us to look at our brethren and to look at ourselves and to realize it is a good thing for the Lord to restore us, to renew us, to revive us, that we would be brought to rest upon God's mercy, to seek the Lord's will, to have the delight and the joy of God's salvation, to be those who would teach transgressors God's ways, to see sinners converted unto the Lord, and to be those who are full of that broken and gracious contrition of heart that delights God. This is good. It's a right thing. Think of it this way. Adam and Eve before the fall, enjoying the many provisions, enjoying the fellowship of God after the fall. They're running away from the fellowship of God. Which is better? Well, obviously, the enjoyment of God's fellowship. Who seeks the restoration of that fellowship? God does. And he does so through the promising of that seed of Eve who would come, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would crush the head of the serpent, though he himself would be bruised by the venomous sting of the serpent. What's the point? It's a better thing for us and for our brethren to enjoy God. And so it's good for us to seek the good of Zion. This is part of loving our neighbor and seeking their good. This is why in the Old Testament, there's that word that says, you know, if you see your brother sin, uh, you're not to let it pass because you love your brother, you're to reprove and rebuke them. Now, some people take that and they have this sort of license just to be rude and bulldoze people. That's not what the scriptures are saying. We see as the new man is uh, taught to us in the New Testament, as well as the old, that there's a tenderness of heart, a kindness, even in reproof. Notice even David, when he says that then will I teach transgressors thy ways and sinners shall be converted unto thee. He's not seeking to bulldoze people by his own force of will and insight, but rather by God's ways to see them restored, which is, of course, what he himself had experienced. So there's the seeking of the benefit of Zion. But brethren, this is not ultimately why he seeks the Lord's blessing. It's not to be divorced and separated, but this, the benefit of those in Zion, the benefit of the church, is ultimately to a higher end, namely, 
to the right praise of God. Then shalt thou be pleased. You see where David's focus is? His focus is on God. He has been brought away from his selfish ambition, his lust-filled desires, and he's now focused on God's desires. His orientation has changed dramatically. His consuming interest is God's honor. Of course, it's good for God's people that they are brought in harmony with God's teaching and brought in harmony with God's law. All of that's good for them. But ultimately, David is looking to the glory of God. And he's saying, Lord, this is my petition so that you would be honored. You would be pleased. You would then receive these sacrifices of righteousness and would be pleased by the service of your people. What he's saying is, he's putting together the whole psalm, but you can see this notion from verse 16 onward. Thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, that will not despise. Then he says, Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion, build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness. What he's asking for is the revival of his cause in his people. Cause the hearts of your people to be brought into that gracious brokenness and contrition that you will not despise, that then will honor you with their sacrifices of righteousness and so on. Do this gracious work so that you would be glorified. Brethren, we need teaching on revival. You know, there's people that put on billboards, you know, visit us next month. We're having a revival in April. Well, we certainly would hope that they would have a revival, but far too often the billboarding and advertising of the things is nothing more than a testimony that we're going to have a meeting and we're going to do certain things. We need uh, uh, teaching on revival to see what it is and what it isn't. And we have others who have reacted and said revival's wrong and it's just emotionalism and so on. But brethren, both of those are wrong. The scriptures everywhere indicate that God-sent revival is both good, needed, and to be desired. But it's not to be desired for its own sake. What happens when revival comes, whether personally in one's soul or in one's marriage or one's family, or more broadly in a congregation, or more broadly even in a region or regions, is that God is reorienting a people to His glory and praise. God becomes central in everything. God becomes the focus of the whole of one's life. And so it's no wonder that when true revival comes, God is what's spoken of. God is the focus. God is the fixation of the heart. You can judge the spiritual temperature of a people, of a person, of a congregation by just listening to their talk and whether it's about God or not. A spiritually renewed people are consumed with God, seeking God. It's what Christ says. You know, my disciples seek first my kingdom and righteousness. 
They're consumed with God. Think of Asaph in Psalm 73. He's complaining against God until he's brought near to God. Then he perceives the end of the wicked. And at the end of the psalm, he's saying, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And on earth there's none that I desire besides thee. God is the strength of my portion, of my heart and my portion forever. There's a consuming uh, factor now in the soul with God. And what David is seeking is not just that his soul would be consumed with God, but that now the souls of God's people would be consumed with God. Brethren, what is heaven? Heaven is that perfection of the creature renewed and saved by grace, consumed with God. The beatific vision, what is it? You know, when the believer is then given that gracious sight of Christ in his glory. It is the sight of the blessed one who then brings about blessedness. And what David is earnestly praying is that we as God's people would be oriented to the one who alone satisfies. Brethren, this is what he seeks, that God would indeed be all and in all. Well, what a blessed thing as we see David brought from his miserable rebellion to now his most gracious service both to the people of God and to God himself. He's now seeking the people of God, worshiping God. But think of how this all began. It began by a faithful minister named Nathan. We don't know what Nathan must have thought when God came and said, you're to go to David and you're to show him his sin. We think perhaps of Esther who said to Mordecai, listen, if I go into the king's presence and he doesn't extend the the staff, I'm a dead woman. I'm going to be put to death, right? Right? There's this terror that can come when we realize I've got to deal with someone who has authority, so forth. Brethren, look again. Nathan comes and this word of reproof, lovingly given, blessed of God, doesn't just change David, but by God's grace, it's ordered to transform David's orientation to God, to the church, and to seek the blessing of the church that they too would seek the Lord. But it's not just in David's generation, it's in our generation. We read the psalm and we're being cultivated or it's being cultivated in us to seek the same thing. And you trace this back and it gets to Nathan. Nathan was faithful to carry out the charge given to him. And by that faithful word, this blessing came. Think of this for a moment. Our culture doesn't know what to do with reproof. It either says, well, you know, uh, reproof's difficult, so I'm not going to do it. Or it says, no one does reproof, so I'm just going to launch into it. You know, we should just be reproving monsters and machines and point out everything. We don't know what to do with it because we're so infantile in our understanding of what it is. But when it is practiced as Nathan was commanded and as he carried it out, Look at the great benefit in the Lord's grace that it brings, not just to David, but to David's kingdom, not just to David's kingdom, 
but to the church of Christ throughout. Here is great illustration of what Paul exhorted Timothy. I wonder what many in the church would say today. You know, what is preaching to be taken up with? You know, what should you do? Well, you know, you can look at some churches and you'd think that it's something about telling a bunch of entertaining stories and making people laugh. And it's astounding, isn't it? You can listen to a preacher and they bring tension to a moment, but it's so uncomfortable that they have to rattle off a joke and sort of relieve the tension. And that gets, well, that's a good and clever preacher. Think of what Paul says Timothy's to do in preaching. Second Timothy 4.2, preach the word. Okay, what am I supposed to do? Think of the first word, reprove. Second word, rebuke. Third word, exhort. If you look through it, he doesn't say tell a joke. He doesn't say be entertaining. He doesn't say be funny. He doesn't say be endearing. He gives words that our culture doesn't know what to do with. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. This is to summarize your ministry, Timothy. This is what preaching is. The exhorting, the holding forth of Christ and his will that will reprove, rebuke, and exhort. But notice he goes on to say, with all longsuffering and doctrine, with patience, with endurance. It's a long work. Yes, there are moments where it comes and it hits somebody and by God's grace, as Nathan did, it's instantaneous. Many times it takes far longer, just as in our lives. There are instantaneous moments where God reproves us and oh, we're brought to repent. There are other times where little by little he's building the case and perhaps even years pass by until finally he brings us to repent and turn to the Lord. Brethren, let us not be discouraged in our own day when whether as a minister or as a congregation, we're striving in our generation to say, no, no, that's wrong. And we see no fruit of it. We look around and say, why isn't our church full? Why aren't our churches just growing and outgrowing everyone? I mean, we're standing for the truth and we're earnest for these things and we're telling others about these things. Why is it that it's not working? Well, you'll see the point. We're called to be faithful and yet we're called to rely upon the Lord and his wisdom and his timing by his grace to bring about the fruit. So we're called to be faithful, whether as a minister or as uh, brothers and sisters in the Lord, to hold fast the word of God. But notice what a cause there is to hope in God's mercy. We see it in the life of David himself, having been reproved and how he did repent. We see it also in the psalm, as God is pleased to give us this psalm that cultivates the same in us. And who among us has not been helped by this psalm more earnestly to seek personal renewal and to pray for public renewal of God's people. And what we have there is evidence of God blessing this repentance of David to others and multiplying it beyond what even David could have foreseen. What does this mean? Well, we should not lack hope that as God brings us to repentance and as we start to pray and labor for the advance of his kingdom, we should not lose hope that God is able to use that in ways that pass our comprehension. Notice how right understanding of grace 
makes us most useful. It's not only Roman Catholics, but others who will say things like, well, if salvation is by grace, you know, we'll become careless and imprudent and we'll just sort of waste away and so on. But here we see David who is full of the understanding of grace and has become one of the most useful uh, people in God's church. When we rightly understand God's grace, it orients us to the most faithful service for the good of Zion and the praise of our God. Well, brethren, may it be so that we ourselves would taste the mercy of God and thus seek that mercy for others that God's name would be praised. Would you stand with me for prayer?